Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray now that by your Holy Spirit, you would teach us of your Son. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, ever since I was a child, I've had to wear glasses so that I can see properly. Now, I'm short-sighted quite badly in one of my eyes, and I wouldn't have a hope of reading, or frankly of walking down the street in a straight line, if I didn't have some correction. And what I've learned from having glasses is that every now and again, they need to be cleaned. Just in the course of daily life, they get mucked up with all the stuff of inner city London. I've got to wipe them down so that I can see through them well. But more than that, I've learned that every so often, I've got to go back to the optician to get my prescription checked. Because what happens over time is that my eyesight drifts, it just gets a little bit weaker. And I need to go have another test, have a new prescription, and have things put back straight again. I know that when I do go, I'll get a fresh pair of lenses, I'll step out into the street, and again, as I have seen before, I'll see the edges of the leaves on the trees that little bit more clearly. I'll see the shapes of the letters on the pages of my books that little bit more sharply. Now, I guess it's a little bit like a motor car that needs to be tuned up from time to time, or maybe a, a clock that needs to be calibrated. Over time, we can just drift away from essentials, and we're not even noticing it. Perhaps even we can find that we never had those essentials truly right to begin with. Everybody needs a prescription for the first time. Well, that's why I wanted us to go back to basics at these lunchtime services over these next few weeks. We've got a little series called Christianity Explored, and in it we're going to take a trip through Mark's Gospel, looking at the central figure of the Christian faith, Jesus. And as we do that, I hope that we will have a bit of a vision test will be able to look afresh and to see, maybe even see for the first time, what it's all about. I'm one of those people who grew up with Jesus stories in my life. I was going to church uh, as a child. What was true for me, though, has been true for many millions of others. I found that the closer I looked at the person of Jesus the more I found that he meant to me personally. Maybe Jesus is less familiar for you. Maybe you're very familiar with Jesus and the news about him. That's what I want us to explore together, wherever we're coming from, this week and in the weeks to come. The news about Jesus. And we're going to ask three main questions as we go. We're going to ask who is Jesus? Why did Jesus come? And what does it mean to follow him? We're going to start, as you might expect, right at the beginning, at the beginning of Mark's gospel. Now, of the four gospels, those accounts of Jesus' life, Mark's is the shortest and it's the paciest. 
Mark doesn't mess about telling you all of the details and all of the debates as he goes. He just tells it straight as witness testimony. From the earliest of times, it's been understood that Mark was telling us the testimony that Peter, the apostle, gave to him. Peter was one of Jesus' disciples. He followed him. He appears a lot in Mark's gospel. It gives an immediacy and an urgency to the story that Mark tells. Here is a a whirlwind introduction to the life of this person, Jesus. As we begin exploring together this lunchtime, we're going to hear three voices speaking about Jesus. And our task today is simply to hear what they have to say about Jesus and then to think about how we might respond. The first voice is the voice of the Old Testament prophets. And we hear that in verses one to three. At the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. You get the sense just hearing that, what it's all about. It's an announcement. There's a voice calling out, calling people to prepare. And we'll think in a moment who is doing the calling and who is coming. First, though, we've got to get to grips with that word, good news. Good news here, it could be translated gospel. In the language of the day, it was more than just a good news story, like you might get at the end of the evening bulletin. It's not just a feel-good novelty report on some item with an upbeat ending. No, this is something else entirely. This is a sort of news that meant victory in a war that was now over. It's the sort of news that meant a king had come and was sitting on the throne. It's the best news there is. And it's not just shared or published. It's news that is proclaimed. It is shouted from the rooftops. It's met with cheers and with celebrations. It's that kind of news. In this case, this good news has to do with a person. We're given several names and titles for him. Each of them has a meaning that adds something to the goodness of the good news that we're hearing. Because names do have meanings, don't they? My name has a meaning. I discovered that firsthand one day when I was asked to explain it to a border official from another country. There I was at the airport answering some of those security questions that you have to, trying to prove that I was who I said I was. And the woman I was speaking to, she was wonderfully polite throughout, but she was just a little bit terrified. As she looked at the photo page in my passport and she asked me, what is your name? And I said, my name was Alistair. And then she asked me, what does your name mean? And I answered, it shares a root with names like Alexander. It means leader or defender of men. And she laughed at me. 
She laughed straight to my face. She laughed at the idea that I could be considered a leader or a defender of men. And I am just a little bit hurt by her reaction there. I wonder about her. I wonder what she would have made of Jesus here at the start of Mark's gospel. Because here, well, Mark says he is Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. I mean, Jesus means saviour. It is the name for a rescuer, uh, the name for one who will meet people in their needs and lift them out from it. The Messiah is the same word in Hebrew as the Greek Christ. And in English, it means something like the anointed one. It means one who is chosen and marked out for a special task. And in particular, it's a royal appointment. It means that God's king has come to his people. God's special ruler who has authority over everything. And the son of God, too. Well, that also is a title. It describes a unique relationship. We say, like father, like son. And they're like each other because they're of the same stuff as one another. Well, so it is with this son and his father. God's son is like God. They're of the same stuff. He is God. And that's why the prophet that Mark quotes says, prepare the way for the Lord. That was a name given to God himself. This is more than just a nice title and honorific for a noble or a respectable person. This is an announcement that God himself has come to his people. And so the announcement goes out, good news, prepare the way. God is on the move and you'll meet him in Jesus. I really do wonder what that woman at Passport Control would have made of all of this. Because when she heard my name, uh, she looked me up and down and she thought there was no way that I could be what my name claimed, a leader, a defender of man. She scoffed in a way that still hurts me. But I wonder what she would make of Jesus. I wonder how she would respond to these claims. Because a question that he has to match up to now is does his name and do his titles truly reflect who he is? That takes us to the second of those voices that we hear at the beginning of Mark's gospel. It is the voice of John the Baptist. And here we see from verses four to eight. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the river Jordan. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt round his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. 
I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now he cuts a strange figure, John the Baptist. He's got a strange outfit. He's got a strange diet. His behavior is considered strange in his day as well as in our own. The reason for his oddness is that he is acting like one of the ancient prophets. And actually he is fulfilling that ancient prophecy that we heard a moment ago. He is a voice in the wilderness calling out. He is a messenger preparing the way. To put it in another way, John the Baptist was a little bit like a tour guide. He was gathering people and drawing them to Jesus and then telling them about him. The question that we've got to ask about John is, is he a reliable guide? Now, some years ago, I was having a picnic lunch by the River Thames in central London. And one of those open-topped boats came down the river and pulled almost to a halt. And I could hear what was going on on board over the loudspeaker. There was a group of tourists and they were listening to their tour guide identify all of the local landmarks nearby and give a little spiel explaining what they were about. We were by the Millennium Bridge. There was the Tate Modern on the one side with the Globe Theatre not far away and on the other side that great dome of St Paul's Cathedral. And this guy, this tour guide, well as he pointed out the landmarks He explained what they were all about and wove into his explanations what I can only describe as a pack of lies. He'd invented a lurid backstory to William Shakespeare that included the plot of a play that didn't even exist. His history of St Paul's from the Great Fire all the way through to the Blitz, it was very entertaining but it bore no relation to reality. To this day, I still wonder how many people were taken in by this tour guide's comedy routine. I wonder how many tips he got that day. John the Baptist here. John the Baptist has a captive audience in the crowd that has followed him. And he makes some outlandish claims about Jesus. But we've got to ask whether he's the kind of tour guide who's making things up. Or whether he's the kind of tour guide who really knows his stuff. John says that he is much less than Jesus, that he's not worthy to untie his sandals even, what would have been the job of a slave. He says that he was baptizing people with water. That was a sign of being washed and being made clean from sin outwardly. But Jesus, he said, Jesus would baptize people with the Holy Spirit an inner cleansing from sin and a transformation from within that comes only from God. John's claim is that Jesus is uniquely powerful and has a unique authority. The question is, does that stand up to scrutiny? Well, we barely have time to scratch the surface today, but I want to look very briefly 
at five incidents that Mark tells us about over these next few chapters, which serve to substantiate his claim. The first comes in verses 21 and 22. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. As Jesus went from town to town teaching and preaching, he was teaching about himself and about his kingdom. And as he went, the people were amazed. And as they heard what he said, they reasoned that he was unlike anyone that they had ever heard before. Jesus had the power and the authority to teach. Here's another one. It follows straight in verse 23. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, who is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. I think perhaps we downplay the forces of evil in our culture today. But the Bible understands impure spirits, demonic powers at work in the world. Jesus has the authority and power over demons. Here's a third one. It comes in verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. This is Simon, who Jesus would later call Peter, uh, the apostle. And his mother-in-law is in bed with a fever. And when Jesus arrives, it is just one touch of his outstretched hand that restores her back to health. She was the first. She was by no means the only person who Jesus helped in this way. Verse 34 says that Jesus healed many who had various diseases. Jesus has power and authority over sickness. And then, well, let's skip ahead for our fourth incident to chapter four. Uh, There, Jesus and his followers are on a boat in an almighty storm, and the disciples are panicked, but Jesus is sound asleep. Chapter four, Verse 37, a furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. For all the drama and danger of a raging storm, Jesus is almost casual 
here. A couple of words is all that it takes, and immediately those choppy waters are calm again. The disciples ask themselves a question. It's a question that we might well ask. They ask, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Because they've seen that Jesus has power and authority over nature. Well, here's a fifth and a final incident for us. It comes in chapter 5. One of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. Now, here's a truly sad situation. A man, a religious leader, is desperate because his little daughter is gravely ill. He comes to Jesus for help, but things take a turn for the worse. Uh, While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. Now that is a big thing to say to a grieving father. In the school playground when guys were sizing each other up and threatening to fight, they used to say to one another, don't write checks with your mouth that your body can't cash. And I wonder if we might be saying something similar of Jesus here. Except, except, Well, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. At this, they were completely astonished. Well, you would be, wouldn't you? Just a couple of words and an outstretched hand and the dead girl gets up, restored, back to life and back to health again. Jesus has the power and authority over death. So we come back to the voice of John the Baptist and his claim about Jesus, that he's uniquely powerful and has unique authority. Does it check out? Well, Jesus has power and authority to teach. Jesus has power and authority over demons. Jesus has power and authority over sickness. Jesus has power and authority over nature. Jesus has power and authority even over death itself. Now I wonder what you make of those claims. They might seem unreliable to you. They might seem unbelievable. But the only thing that they cannot be is unimportant. Because if this is true, if Jesus is who he's said to be here, then surely the good news about him 
deserves your time to explore it further. Next week, we're going to zoom in on one incident in particular uh, that shows the full extent of Jesus' power and authority, the power and authority he has to forgive sins. For today, though, for today, let's give the last word to the final voice in our passage at the start of Mark's gospel. In verses 9 to 11, it is the voice of God. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Uh, Jesus identified with and associated with a people who needed cleansing from sin. And as he's baptized that as a sign of that, heaven is torn open. The Holy Spirit comes down on him and God the Father announces from heaven, You are my son. It means that that announcement is affirmed. What had been promised in the past and what had been preached in the present has been confirmed from heaven. That God himself has come to his people. He's come to them in a saviour, in a messiah, in the person of Jesus. Why he's come, what it means for us, well, those questions will have to wait until next week and the weeks that follow. For now, though, let me end with this, that as we explore these things together, and as we hear from Mark about this person of Jesus, if you don't think that it is the best news that you have ever heard, you can be absolutely sure that you've not understood it. And with that in mind, let me invite you back next week at the same time where we'll look in a bit more detail about this character of Jesus and start to see what it is that he came to do.